0: There's a little bit of reverse engineering that goes into it. For me, so much of it is about like pretending to be confident or at least like presenting yourself as confident because depending on the kind of comic you are, I, even if you're like your shtick is that you have low self-esteem, the audience can smell the blood in the water if you're not confident. if they, if they They can sense immediately if you do not think you're funny and like they don't want that.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Airplane Mode. This is your host, Clay Skipper speaking. We couldn't have a season on confidence and not have a conversation with a stand-up comic. That job seems extremely nerve-wracking and it seems like it would take a fair amount of confidence to overcome those nerves. So this week we're talking with the professionally funny Joel Kim Booster. If you're familiar with Joel's comedy or if you know anything about him or maybe if you follow him on Twitter... You know that in addition to being very funny, he's also very thoughtful and he has led a very interesting life, which he's open about. And so that's most of what we do on this episode. We sort of unpack where he came from, his upbringing, how he got to where he is now. And I think in listening to Joel talk about those experiences and the lessons he's learned along the way, you'll get an understanding and an insight into how he got the confidence to write and perform jokes and get up on stage and. and do stand-up comedy in addition to the acting and the other performance work he does. So in that way, it's one of our more wide-ranging conversations. He talks about growing up in a religious family and ultimately leaving that religion, Christianity, behind. He talks about coming out to his parents in high school and how he ended up leaving home. He talks about how growing up gay in high school and middle school, comedy and humor was something of, of a defense or coping mechanism for him and how it gave him confidence at a young age. He talks about how though, even though he's always been comfortable on stage and performing, he's done comedy for about a decade. And he's only really felt confident in the last year. And then towards the end, he goes into how the most nerve wracking thing he does in his work is perform comedy sets on gay cruise ships. So again, sort of all over the place, but I think hearing all of that will give you a good sense of who Joel is and how he got to where he is now and how he got the confidence that he does have now. So here he is, Joel Kim Booster.
0: Joel, what's up? Not much. Thank you for having me. Do you have guests on your podcast? Um, Sometimes. It's more so we have friends who are notable comedians call in and ask for advice themselves.
1: The reason I ask is because I always say, I would have normally said, Joel Kim Booster, welcome to airplane mode. But I just like, I can't, I can't listen to myself say that anymore. And so I'm curious, <laughs> but now I've done it so many times that I don't know how to not start that way.
0: Yeah. And it is like one of those weird things where no one else will ever notice it or feel weird about it, but you can't get it. <laughs> Until out now. I, I mean, I'm like that with my standup sets, like, there's nobody in most of the crowd who has heard 99% of the jokes, but because I've said it a thousand times, like I feel like I need to change it just a little bit. And usually it will probably make the joke worse doing that for an audience who's never heard the original. So I totally understand that impulse. As someone who has never done comedy
1: and is clearly not very imaginative, that had never occurred <laughs> to me before.
0: You hit, you find it, you find like the the joke that has the, you know, 98% success rate And then you dismantle it because you're like, surely like they can tell that I've said this the same way for the last, you know, six months and you got to change it. But most of the time, it it usually just ends up making it slightly more convoluted in some way that it didn't need to be. What's the worst you've ever bombed? (laughs) The worst I've ever bombed was right after I started headlining clubs in like late summer 2016. I did this comedy club in Phoenix, and it was a couple weeks before the election. And it was, it was just like a full nightmare. It was, I think I did like eight shows that week, eight, like didn't eat shit for the entire hour, but it was not a fun experience. I mean, it was just a lot of conservative white people and who were older, who just like weren't really interested in any of the things that I had to say. I, I will say additionally, like, two things stick out to me about that week. One is the guy who featured for me. And this was like, right, right, really close to the election. His closer involved getting the audience to chant lock her up. wow, And then I had to go on stage right after that. And like, I'm not an especially overtly political comedian, but I think like people can pretty much glean from the context of my jokes, which way I was leaning. So there was like that barrier. (laughs) And then that was also the week. And this actually ended up being like the best show that I had that week. But um, a woman yelled out in the middle of the set that like, if I'd have been breastfed, I wouldn't have been gay, which ended up like being turned into a pretty funny bit. And it was also like talking, I ended up talking to her for like 20 minutes before they kicked her out. And it was the most the audience liked me all week was just like roasting this lady in the crowd for a while. But yeah, it was not a pleasant experience. How did you respond to that? Woman, You know, I just like sort of interrogated her (laughs) a little bit about like, what is the science behind that viewpoint? And she was just like a drunk Arizona, like sunburnt lady. So of course, she had like nothing to back it up with. I mean, that's like, I I was still learning to do crowd work at that point, which is something now I do a lot more of, but it is, a lot of it is just like asking questions and letting people bury themselves. <laughs> and um she definitely did that in spades. Imagine if she'd come back with some hard
1: science on that. I
0: mean, yeah, that's the other thing. Like sometimes people come back when you ask them those questions and you ask them the question because you think they won't have a good answer. And when they do, it makes it all the better. <laughs> she did not. Totally. Some would... Say, fortunately for mankind, but yeah. unfortunately for the, for
1: the chemistry of your show. How so? This was twenty sixteen. So how early on were you in your comedy career?
0: I started in twenty eleven. So okay. I was only about like four and a half, five years deep at that point.
1: I just would assume that doing stand up would help your overall confidence because it just seems, again, to me as an outsider, like a very scary thing. So how has stand-up effect of your confidence. Maybe it hasn't at all, but I'm just like, that's my impression.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that it has ultimately. There's a little bit of reverse engineering that goes into it. For me, so much of it is about like, Pretending to be confident, or at least like presenting yourself as confident, because depending on the kind of comic you are, I even if you're like your shtick is that you have low self esteem, the audience can smell the blood in the water. If you're not confident, if they if they they can sense immediately if you do not think you're funny, and like they don't want that you know like audiences are pretty in tune with that kind of energy and so it was a lot a lot of stand-up especially when i was like early days like going up at open mics where like nobody gave a shit about what you were talking about you really do have to like bring that energy on stage with you and then slowly over time i guess it's sort of maybe like reverse engineered itself uh, and I you know became more confident just by virtue of that I generally probably thrive better <laughs> with lower expectations than than higher ones like I find myself less confident if it is like my show in New York, like where, you know, my people are or San Francisco or whatever, like it feels like the stakes are higher in that situation than like being in, you know, Branson, Missouri and like going up to a packed crowd of people who who have never heard of me before. It's a little bit more fun to like watch people figure me out live, at least for me than it is. It's definitely like the stakes feel lower in some ways.
1: That's really interesting. I was because I was going to ask, yeah, like as you get higher profile, how that affects your confidence? Because it does feel like it sets a new standard that you then have to keep either meeting or jumping above.
0: Yeah, I mean the thing is is like it's tailing all this time. At least it, for comedians and I think for real people too is that like you get on TV and you stop doing stand up but you still tour stand up and then you become bad at stand up. And it's like the one thing, it's the thing that got you there in the first place. And that is like my greatest fear. Like that's been my fear this last year of touring for sure is that I put so much pressure on myself. You know, like people are really supportive and like fans of like that first Comedy Central special and like some of my early shit. And then, you know, and suddenly I'm drawing crowds because of other stuff that's not related to stand-up, And I don't want to be that guy where they're like, oh, he used to be good, but he's clearly not going up a lot anymore. So I find that like, I'm almost less confident. I I feel like there was like one year where I was really confident <laughs> as a stand up going up. But I find like, I don't know, it's not it's not at unhealthy levels. It definitely modulates. Like there was a period in I would say in all of twenty nineteen, if you saw me live, I was thinking almost the entire time like i'm i'm bad at this i would say only in the last like couple of months have i found the happy medium of like feeling really confident in the hour that i have now and also like still having that little sort of voice in the back of my head that's like you better like prove them wrong just to, which is enough to like sort of keep me going and, and pushing me because I, I don't want to be complacent. And so I think like some of that is good to have and hold on to. But I think 2019 was like not a good year for me stand-up wise. And I apologize to anybody who's listening who paid money to see me do stand-up in 2019. <laughs> but um yeah, it was just like, it was, a, it was a weird time for me as a stand-up. What do you think it was that crept up this year that made it a weird time? You know, I think it was partially the move from New York to L.A., when I was living in New York, you know, for five years, like you can go up two to three times a night in New York. And like, for me as a, as a stand-up, that's how I write. Like, I don't sit down in a coffee shop somewhere and like, well, like, what am I going to write a joke about today and then write it word for word and then try it out on stage later that night? Like mostly it stems from a place of like, This is a funny premise. Like, I want to talk about cat cafes and like my experience at a cat cafe. And I don't really go in with like any sort of roadmap beyond that. I sort of just like talk about that. That's really easy to do when you are in New York and you're going up at bar shows and club shows like two to three times a night because you're trying it out three times in a night. Whereas in LA, there's like less stage time. The stage time you do get there's always like somebody in the audience, there's always some industry in the audience, you're like, Oh, fuck, I should probably impress this person. Or you're like, I'm less inclined to do new shit, because like, I want to like impress these people. And you're going up less. And when you're going up less, like, you know, going up in New York, and like having a brick of a joke, like one minute of silence, because you're trying something new, it like doesn't feel that important, because you're on to the next show, and then it'll work there, you know, but in LA, because you're, I'm lucky to go up, like last week, I went up once every night. that felt like a, a fucking miracle because you know it's it's a little bit harder to come by and it's all spread out it's just like the logistics are different as a stand up in LA and so my writing capacity was like slightly blunted In last year, because I was shooting a show, I was shooting a couple shows, I was like, busy doing all these other side projects and stand up was like still and I want it to can like continue to be sort of a centerpiece of my career. But it, it definitely I definitely didn't feel confident. It definitely felt more like I was like, faking it through a lot of those moments until close to the end of the year. And you got it back now? Uh yeah. I mean, I it, it co- it's a it's definitely comes in waves, you know. But I'll and I'll be frank too. Like I tried to sell a special in 2019, and like it didn't happen. And you know, it's funny because like my reps were sort of like you know, and th- this is their job to say shit like this, where it's like, well, you know, the show, the NBC show hasn't come out yet. Like wait until that happens, then we'll be able to sell it. And that really pissed me off because I was like. Well, no, I don't want to sell a shitty special just because I'm successful from something else. Like, I want the special to be good. And I had like a real, like, come to Jesus moment, like, in the middle of that year where I was like, well, fuck, like, should I even be doing this? Like, cause I've had people tell me since I started that, like, oh, you're just like one of those guys who like wants to get in a writer's room. Like, stand up is just a means to an end. Like, you're going to get an acting job and then immediately quit stand up and like that i think is like something i've been trying to buck for the like the 10 years that i've been doing stand up and so I had a moment last year where I was like, "Well, fuck! Like maybe they were right. Like maybe I should just like take my fucking cushy network acting job and then be happy with that and and not have to do this anymore." Because sometimes, like, stand up is exhausting. It's like I work a full day in a writer's room, and then I the last thing I want to do is fucking drive to Santa Monica so I can do ten minutes at a fucking Chuckle Hut. Like that's not like glamorous to me, but I do it because I like it, and it's more fulfilling than anything else that I do. How? Confident, were you, like, I'm curious to
1: get into your confidence growing up, because I think it would be fair, you've talked about it a fair amount in your comedy, you, Yeah, you had a fairly interesting childhood and upbringing, and so I'm curious how confident you were as a kid or how you
0: discovered your confidence. It's interesting, like, I don't remember necessarily having, like, low self-esteem or not being confident as a kid, but there was definitely stuff, like, I would avoid, and I still, I have a pretty avoidant personality about stuff like I'm pretty honest about like the shit that I'm not good at and I would rather just not do it like I'm a pretty competitive kid and so as soon as I figure out that there's like somebody better than me like my options are get better than them or not do it And like, that's not necessarily healthy, but like, I mean, growing up, I loved video games. I I just remember like getting Zelda as a kid and like loving it. And then my brother getting, being so much better at it than I was. And then being like, all right, well, I'm out. Like, and I just stopped playing, (laughs) Uh you know? And like, that was like not necessarily like the greatest attitude to have, but it definitely made me like really fucking good at the stuff that I was good at. Like my brother was a slow reader. Sorry, Sam, if you're listening to this. I still remember the first like non-picture book I read. I read Matilda in like a full day. And I remember my mom like freaking out and being like, this is like, that's crazy. I was like seven. I remember everyone in my family being like, that's so impressive. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a reader. And like, it really was like, I'm not sure what came first, like the love of reading or just knowing that that was like going to be a part of my personality because I was good at it. Well, I love the idea of like confidence as a, as just going towards the things you're good
1: at, (laughs) sort of like a self-selecting. So to that point, when did you
0: know you were funny? That's like a tough question. That's like always like the question I think people ask comedians. And for me, it's like hard to gauge. I remember like making my family laugh when I was a kid to like very like burping, you know? Like I remember I could like fucking, you know, house food and then burp. And then like when you're young, people think that's cute. But then that's like cuteness laughing, you know? And then like your group of like boyfriends when you're in junior high and you watch Monty Python or fucking Austin Powers and you just like repeat lines to each other and that makes people laugh. And like, I don't know when it was that I started of my own like personality, like making people laugh. I mean, the other thing is, is like as a gay kid, especially in high school and junior high and like as somebody who like found it very difficult to hide the fact that they were gay or at least like culturally reads as gay to most people you can't hide and so like you have two options which is like turn it down to zero and completely disappear in social situations or like sort of lean into it and just like be funny and then yeah you know that confuses people a little bit more like you know people are not focused so much on on the differences, they're they're like, oh, he's the funny guy. That is where that this the sort of very damaging stereotype that all gay men are funny. I think it comes from is that we all sort of found that defense mechanism. You know, like those are oh, your wow. choices. You yeah. either like passes straight and are fine, and like get to come out whenever the fuck you want, or you got to like completely like blend in with the background or stand out as a comedian. And and that's what I did like in high school a lot was like, you know, I found it very easy to redirect attention from myself if I was like being funny or like being mean, uh, which is like a lot of comedy in high school is, is just sort of like redirecting focus on somebody else being fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just constant roasting. Yeah. You you brought up high school. I, you know, when I was reading,
1: I think it was a, maybe a vulture interview, but I was reading an interview you did and you mentioned how you came out of the closet drank and smoked weed for the first time in like the same month or the same week?
0: Yeah, same same month definitely. I'm not sure if it was the same week, but what the hell was that week like or that month? I think it was like I mean, I grew up very religious and very sheltered and very like in a very controlled environment and I think like you figure out what like freedom is and then you just want all of it immediately. And so, yeah, it was just like I was a I was a powder cake, you know? Like you put so much pressure on me and I just like exploded that last year. And it was like, I've always been a person who's like pretty in control. Like I was still getting good grades and like I was partying in the same way that all the other fucking honor society kids were on the weekends. And like very like there'd be one friend whose mom was like, okay, car keys in the bowl. Everyone, it's a sleepover. That sort of vibe. (laughs) You grew up Christian? Yeah. How religious are you now? I would say agnostic at best. I, it's, it's hard to like, grow up like deep, deep evangelical Christian, like every facet of your life is sort of goes back to your religion. Like you connect, you learn to connect everything back to your religion and God and whatnot. And um, and that's how you find order. And I definitely don't believe in God traditionally in the way that I grew up believing in God, but it is hard to, I think, completely deprogram yourself from looking at the world that way. I actually was just saying this the other day, like astrology has been around for a long, 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 long time, but it definitely does feel like it's having a moment in the last like five years or so. And I think that's because my generation is like the least religious generation of Americans that have come up in a long time. And I, but I do think that like, it's a way to find order and meaning and like we're just looking for that That in a way that doesn't feel oppressive and, and astrology just sort of fits that bill in a weird way for a lot of people. They're just like filling that hole that Jesus left with, you know, Chani Nicholas and, and co-star. <laughs> That's so interesting
1: you say that because it's technically our second season of this podcast, which is... Not a thing. Like podcasts don't really do seasons unless they're like true crime podcasts. <laughs> right, yeah, but we themed this season confidence, and I was actually thinking for the third season if we should do something on like faith or religion. Yeah, because I, I I agree with you. I think it is. I think it's gonna come back around. Because like I, again, I don't think organized religion necessarily, but I do think people our age. Because you're thirty one. Yeah, and I'm thirty, and feels like people our age are really grasping for some sort of. I think the, a good word used in there was like order. Yeah. I didn't grow up very religious, but my parents did. And like, it just gives you a real sense of like structure, right? Structure and community. And it seems like a lot of us are lacking that.
0: Well, yeah. it's weird because like all the kids that I went to high school with who I was drinking and smoking weed with in high school, like anybody who stayed in our hometown and just like had a quote unquote like normal life, like now they are super Christian and it's weird. It's like their parents weren't Christian either, but like you stay, they everyone who stayed in my hometown is like now like uber conservative. And Christian, and I think it is partially like trying to recreate like the community aspect of high school, and like finding that that order again. I don't know. It's I, it's a weird phenomenon that I know a lot of people share. How was that process
1: for you of moving from heavy Christian upbringing to sort of agnostic, but like agnosticism as as you are now? Like that, it just seems to me again as an outsider like a disruptive process.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really disruptive. It was a really like huge paradigm shift for me, and like. Psychologically, like, you know, I think I like at the time was like, yeah, this is great. It's, it felt freeing in a lot of ways, but it definitely was a mindfuck in a lot of others. And it took me a long time to like sort of reconcile what happened. I, I would say, like, I was out in high school when I was like 16 for like a year before I came out to my parents or my parents found out I was gay rather because I didn't really come out to them. But like, Like, I fully for that year, like, definitely thought I was going to hell. Like, I I definitely had a lot of, like, well, I'm going to hell. I might as well just, like, live my life, like, in a way that I want until then. And that's, like, not a healthy way for a teenager to live their lives. It was definitely took a long, long time to sort of, like, deprogram that part of my brain. And um, my best friend in high school and now, and and to this day, is um, her dad was the Methodist pastor in our town, um, very progressive guy and he like was very gung-ho like her parents basically were the ones who were like hey by the way like hell doesn't exist there's no theological basis for hell in the bible it's totally made up um that's not how god works and it took me a while to like and it definitely it was weird to like go from being like a church boy to not but still needing somebody with that authority to tell me that was really meaningful in a lot of ways and like she's now a pastor herself in Seattle and like talking, you know, to people in the same position. And it's it's an interesting way to see how like religion is evolving with our generation too. Definitely do that third season on religion, for sure. <laughs> well, I was just gonna ask what her name was. Are you guys, you guys are still friends? Yeah, her name's Sarah. Uh, she's a pastor in Seattle now. And like, it's interesting to me to like see the split in the way that like my parents' church and the way and their sort of denomination has gone like full tilt. Trump, I don't know. It's like there's no responsibility there for the world or for other humans. Whereas Sarah, the work she does in her community in Seattle is like, yes, it's a it's a, it's it's about faith in God and whatnot, but like it's a lot about like driving people, organizing people to like go to ICE protests and making sure that like they can provide for the homeless community. And like that feels more in line with what Christianity writ large should be doing, at least from my perspective. And like, I'm not, I don't believe in God, like she believes in God, but like I'm totally down for that version of Christianity. How could you not be? You said you didn't come out to your parents. Uh, How did they find out? They read my journal very famously, is a big part of my, my, my act for a while was that situation. But yeah, they basically just like took a peek at the old journal uh, after I'd been out for a year and uh, read all about the aforementioned like drinking and smoking and, and sex and all the other stuff that I was getting into that I was keeping hidden from them. I mean, I like bought a car without them knowing and parked it down the street so they didn't know about it. There was like so many secrets like that they were all just suddenly became very aware of at once. And so then from there, you ended up, did I read you ended up leaving home? Yeah, I moved out at 17. And that's actually how I met Sarah and her family. Sarah and I had like one class together in high school. We weren't really friends. We were like acquaintances. And she basically like everyone at school knew that I was like out of my, ha- my parents' house. I was like how chopping and trying to find new places to stay. And she basically was like, hey, do you want to come and stay at my place? And she was saying it to be nice. I don't think she actually thought I would take her up on it, but I did. <laughs> and uh, I stayed like one night. Her parents were sort of mad at her for inviting me because her dad's like a paraplegic and she had two younger brothers. It was like a big situation to just like drop a whole other teenager into. Um, but they like talked to me that night and they were like, hey, come back for dinner tomorrow. And then I ended up staying with them for the rest of my senior year. And they they co-signed on my student loans. When I went to college, they like bought me a new car for graduation, the whole like nine. It was the best thing that could have happened to me, I think that year, because I just got a year to be a normal teenager. I don't know where I'd be now. Because I thought, I definitely thought I had it under... Control. I I was like, yeah, I'm going to be good. You know, like this is, I've got my life and and, and I'm going to be good no matter what. But it definitely, I don't know. I I think I would have spun out way sooner if I didn't have that year to just like have a stabilizing presence who told me I was okay and like affirmed that like I wasn't going to hell and that like it was cool to be who I was, as corny as that sounds. It's it's amazing. It's beautiful. What did you think you would? be at that point? I, I thought, you know, I always wanted to be an actor. It's I sort of like since I was like a little kid, I knew I wanted to be an actor. Uh, and then I think like for one brief stint in like early high school, middle school, I thought I'd be a youth pastor because I thought that would be like a a sensible sort of middle ground between my faith and and being an actor. Um, And then like once I was in high school and out and like being a youth pastor was definitely not in the cards anymore. It definitely turned back to being an actor. And I think like, uh, I thought I'd be a theater actor for a while. I thought that felt reasonable. I never in a million years thought I'd be on TV in any capacity. I didn't think I that's how I'd make my money. Um, But yeah, and that's what I went to school for. I went to theater school, just like thinking I'd have like a pretty modest career. I don't know. Did you come to the
1: stage naturally? Were you like, were you ready? Were you confident in that first role or how'd that shake out?
0: Yeah. I don't remember. I have never functionally had stage fright. Like I can't remember a time I've ever been like super nervous to perform. Wow. I definitely like playing sports was always like i i would make me nervous outside of like practice okay. like i always did way better in practice than i did like at actual games but i can't remember ever like f- being that afraid to like act or perform so but but sometimes like performing for sports you'd get yeah well i think it's like it's the same thing with like video games like i'm not good at sports and so like it like uh i knew i was good at this other thing and so like it didn't like make me nervous to do it. I mean, I like when I was in musicals and I had to sing, like I'm an okay singer, but it's definitely not like a skill. Like it's definitely doesn't come super naturally to me. So I I guess I would get a little nervous before I'd have to do that. But even that, like I would do, that's sort of the reverse of, of basketball for me is like, I would like do terribly in the rehearsals. But then like, once you get an audience, you sort of like, I uh, figured out how to make it work no matter what. When was the last time you can remember being like super nervous? I, I perform on a lot of cruise ships And uh, specifically, like, gay cruise ships and those shows make me more nervous than anything. Like, I still get really nervous doing those shows. Even, like, I just did one in January and I got nervous every single time before I would go on stage. Wow, I have so many questions here. (laughs) How did you end up performing on cruise ships? Uh, Well, like, cruise ships are, like, an old school way for stand-ups to make money. It's not a lot of money. And I started doing it, like, two years ago, like, definitely after... I had been working for a while, but I got this offer to do it. And like, I don't know, like the second time I ever did stand up in Chicago was for a stand up contest. And the person who won the contest would get to open for this comedian, Brad Lokely, who was a New York based person who's now LA based. And he's a gay comedian and he's been doing this for a million years and he's amazing. And I won that contest and I got to open for him. In Chicago, and I just remember after the show, like tons of people coming up to him and being like, "Oh my god, we love you from the cruises! Like, are you doing this next cruise? Blah blah blah." And like half the audience was that. And then flash forward, almost like almost ten years later, like probably like eight years later, I get this offer to do this cruise, and I I DM'd him and I was like, "Hey, should I do this?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, that's the same cruise that I'm doing." And like he still do, does them, and like he's like they're a blast. Do wow! It. And I did it, and like I don't know, it had it's an interesting challenge. Um, as a comedian, but it's also like a shit ton of fun as a human being. So it's like a free cruise. And so I've done four of them in the last like year and, and some change, um, anytime they ask. And it's like my, my agents get mad. Cause it's like, I do it for way below my rate. They're like, this is not good enough money to be doing, to take a week out to do this. But I'm like, no, I have so much fun. Um, but the shows are a nightmare for me. Uh, so <laughs> it is a trade off. It's a free vacation, but uh, as a stand-up, it is a full nightmare. The thing that seems wild is if you bomb on a cruise ship, now you're stuck on the Yeah, no, that's ship why I everybody. get nervous. The stakes are so high. And here's the thing, like, you know, half the audience is, like, drunk because they've been drinking all day, and, like, half the audience, it's, like, it's a weird thing. Like, you, you have to see them. There's, like, this weird component where, like, you know, if you see someone hot, like, you want to, like, impress them because you want to have uh-huh. sex later, and, like, <laughs> half the audience are, like... And then the biggest... Hurdle about performing on a cruise ship is that like ninety percent of the audience that you're performing to on a cruise ship has never seen comedy before. Like they're the, the least comedy literate audience you'll ever perform for. Is it's it's, it's interest. It's a great time to be a stand up right now because you can do really complicated, really interesting shit on the road, even even in like smaller towns. Because like most people are like who are going to comedy clubs are like comedy nerds and they like. They know their shit. They know their comedy. And like, they're not going to laugh at some low hanging fruit, like basic ass joke because they've heard it, you know, whereas it's sort of the reverse on the cruises where like, sometimes they just want to hear a good old fashioned like accent joke, making fun of somebody's accent, you know, <laughs> like they don't want to, you know, they don't want to like it's, it's you can't get too complicated because they're drunk and they're, you know, they're not used to seeing comedy. So you sort of have to like, remember that you're the first comedian they've ever seen. And that can be challenging. You brought up wanting to have sex with someone in the crowd in there, which brings me to a question I'd wanted to ask you
1: because you talk a lot about dating in your comedy. And I'm curious how dating has maybe altered or changed your confidence.
0: It's so funny because I definitely wouldn't even say I talk about dating so much anymore as I do just about sex because I don't really date anymore. I'm just (laughs) mostly having sex these days. Okay. Are you asking like, has stand-up made me more confident as like, a person like out there in the sort of dating sex pool, or are you asking a different question?
1: Well, that's a better question
0: than <laughs> I think what I originally asked it. So uh, let's go with that. No, I don't think so. Uh, it de- Like, again, it is sort of like this weird reverse engineering thing where I've talked about this before, but like I would say like the first five years of my career, like I felt bad about myself and like that was like, the era of the sad sack up, you know like it's, it's it's i to say it's even an era that's like it's over is is wrong like that's still like a pretty well-worn territory for a lot of standups of like oh god like look at me uh, i can't get a girlfriend and i'm sad because i'm you know blah 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 i look like shit that was my model and that was what i i felt and so i just did that kind of comedy for the first five years and it just felt like less and less interesting territory to mine. And it felt funnier to me to like go out as someone who looked like I did and um, be like, no, I'm great. And you guys are lucky that I'm standing here. And that again, like you're setting the challenge difficulty To a higher level to get an audience to stay on your side in that case. And it's more interesting. I don't know, like, sympathy is like fine. Like, you want, I see a lot of comedians like who go for that angle, like, oh, I just broke up with my girlfriend and, you know, like, now I'm sad. And like, there's a lot of comedy to be mine from that for sure. But like, it definitely uh, felt less interesting to me as like time went on. Yeah, the dating question was a little bit of an incomplete thought, but I was just sort of
1: trying to think out loud since we're around the same age of like we're the generation of dating apps it's just I you know I'm in a relationship now but I've just always found that it can fluctuate between making you feel a lot more confident because you're like sort of talking to a lot more people but there's also like the, the flip side of it which is just it seems like everyone is on this carousel and I can find that like kind of depressing or existentially
0: despairing in some way too, you know? I've definitely cut down on my app usage in the last year and a half or so. I don't get on it so much, A, because like for a couple of reasons, but it definitely like I've realized in the last like year and a half that I test better in the room than I do over an app, if that makes sense. Like I I find that like I'm I'm an attractive guy, like sure, but I can hook up with hotter people if I am like out there, in real life than like the kind of people that i get responses from on the apps just based on my pictures alone like there is like an intangible set like i do think that like for me it matters and like some people are maybe like on paper can just like pull in everybody but like i definitely need that extra oomph uh that like whatever i bring to the table like when i'm actually there in real life uh, makes all the difference for me so i tend to like stay off because like sometimes you look, I don't know, man. Like, I don't like that Tinder added that feature where you can look at the people who swiped right on you. Like, that is not, God did not intend us to see that information Um, because it's real dark. Like, you look at the people who have already swiped right on you and you're like, these are the people that have swiped right on me. It's a a real mirror that you don't want to look into. Oh, wow. And so it's like made me feel actively bad. And then the apps for me right now are like weird because like, I, I wouldn't consider myself like, a famous person by any means, but I do think like when you narrow it down to just like gay people, it's definitely you know there aren't a ton of of like touring gay comedians. So you if you're looking for one of those, you might be more like inclined to know who I am. And so it's a weirder space to be in because like either sometimes people will like lead with that and they'll be like, hey, I really like your work, and then I'm have, I'm, I'm like, oh, thank you, and then they're like they try to continue it, and it's like oh, I don't really want to have sex with you, and I don't want to have to feel like I have to now. Or they'll send you 15 messages in a row that you don't respond to, and then they're like, Well, I used to be a fan, but apparently you suck. And it's oh, like, well, this yeah. feels like entrapment. Totally. Now. Oh man. And then like over Christmas, the last time I did use the apps, I was like over Christmas because I was bored. And then uh literally all of my nudes got posted all over the internet. So now I'm like, I've <laughs> I'm not allowed. Like I can't do it anymore. Wait, really? I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's like I'm I'm like mad but not also like I'm a, a, I'm a man. So it's like a different thing totally. and B like all the reviews were good. So I can't <laughs> be that mad about it. And like, I think they're all down now. I think my lawyers like took care of it, but it was so funny because my manager, I told him immediately and he was like, branding wise, like, it's not going to hurt your career oh my <laughs> like, God. at all. Like it's sort of like in line with what, people would expect I guess so it wasn't like a huge drama moment but I was like man I had no idea how often I was getting catfished on Grinder." so I, I've scaled back considerably how did you find out about that um somebody dm'd me which is funny because like somebody was like lurking on whatever message board they were posted on and saw it and was like hey heads up <laughs> Uh, which I know. appreciate it. I, ultimately, I appreciate, but it is like weird to know that like the person who's tipping you off is like for sure looked at them too. Wow. And w- did you freak the fuck out in the moment? You know, no. It, it felt weird because I was like talking to my friends about it and I was like, I feel weird for feeling... I felt more weird that I felt like mad about it. I was like, I this is like not a big deal. Like I'm just clearly like sending them out sort of indiscriminately. So like I can't care that much. But yeah, Like, my friends were like, no, you're allowed to be mad about this. And I was like, I know. It just it was like a weird conflict of emotions because I was like, I don't care, but I do. It was more like the, like, duplicitous way that they were obtained that I was mad about. But ultimately, like, I know that I it's it's not going to hurt me, ultimately.
1: When you first moved to New York and were doing stand-up, I read that you were still working. You were working at a startup, like, 50 hours a week, right? And so, how confident Uh were you that you were going to make it in comedy, I guess. And what was that experience like?
0: Failure didn't feel like sort of an option, I guess, because I, I was so miserable that like it had to work. I don't know. I just never thought about it as as a possibility that it wouldn't happen because I knew I couldn't do what I was doing during the day. I was like so miserable that like it just had to work. So I was pretty confident, I guess. But it wasn't like confidence in like, oh, I know that like I'm so good that this will make it. But it was just like, I know I can't do this and there's nothing else I'm good at. So I'm just going to keep plugging away. And if it happens this year or if it happens in 10 years, like it has to happen. Otherwise I'm fucked. And it did. So congratulations. Yeah, got real lucky. The last question we asked for on the podcast is for a favorite fuck up. A favorite fuck up. Wow. Um, That's a tough one. My favorite fuck up is I only applied to one school out of high school and It was partially because it was the only school I could apply to online. And like, I was going through a really rough period, obviously. Like I was out, you know, I'd moved out of my house. I was like cow chopping. I was living with a strange family. Like I didn't have like a lot of structure or people pushing me. And so I applied to this one school because my friend, uh, my prom date from the previous year went there. And that's the only reason I knew about it. I knew it had a pretty good theater program. It was a small private school. I applied to it. I got in. I took out a shit ton of loans, like as many student loans as they would let me take out to go there. And like, it's a good school, but like, I definitely should not have gone there financially speaking. Um, But I stayed there all four years and like worked really hard and like learned, certainly learned a lot. But I definitely like in the like four years after school when I started paying off those loans, like I was paying, I, I paid more in rent, Or more in loans than I did in rent for 10 full years and only managed to pay off my student loans because I booked a network sitcom and was able to wipe them out with that money. Um, nobody, I remember like my senior year, we all had to meet with the financial advisor before we graduated and she looked at me in the eyes. Her name was Nancy. I'm not going to say her last name. I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, but Nancy, (laughs) she knows who she is. Looked at me, looked at my major and was, and looked at my debt level and was like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, (laughs) She didn't say fuck, but she basically was like, there is no way you'll be able to pay off this loan with this kind of degree in the next 20 years. And I remember feeling like really ashamed of it for a long time. And like, yeah, in hindsight, should I have gone to a state school or maybe not gone to school at all? Probably, but like ultimately all of those, all the decisions that I made, like, you know, I learned a lot about creating shit at that school and I learned work ethic and, you know, it pointed me in the direction of Chicago. And if I hadn't gone to Chicago and like done theater, I wouldn't have met the people that pushed me to do comedy. And if I didn't do comedy, I wouldn't be where I am now. Like comedy was not in the cards for me going into college. It was only a thing that felt like a viable option for me in the year after college because of this shit that I did. So. Yeah, it was probably a fuck up. It was certainly a huge gamble to take out, you know, I could buy a house with the amount of money that I fucking spent on student loans after interest, especially like private student loans. Holy shit, what a fuck up. But I'm pretty happy with where I am now. So I guess it worked out ultimately. What school is it? Milliken University. All right. If they give you a huge scholarship or you're rich as fuck, go to that school. It's dope. It's great. I loved everything about it. All the teachers are amazing. I learned so much so many skills that I use to this day in what I in in all of my jobs. But don't take out student loans to go to theater school. That's all I'll say. Yeah. But it worked. So take that, Nancy. Yeah, I mean, or I guess gamble on yourself. That's the other <laughs> Exactly. Well, I so
1: appreciate you taking the time, Joel. This has been so great.
0: Yeah. Thanks for uh, doing this. Of
1: course. Happy to. Glad we can make it work. That's a wrap on this week's episode of Airplane Mode. Thank you to Joel. Thank you to that dog that was ever so slightly barking. Shout out to our most carefully listening listeners, if you heard it. Thank you, Jessamyn Molly, our producer. Thanks to you guys for tuning in. If you have not left a review, please consider doing that. It helps. Season's winding down. I appreciate all the feedback. If you want to reach out directly, I'm at clay underscore skipper at gq.com. I'll talk to you guys next week.